Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. We're going to jump in there in just a moment. I'm going to lean on the guys from the Bible Project to help us in just a second. We'll watch their introductory video on um, 2 Thessalonians. Sonny's going to jump up with me in a couple minutes. He's going to help me with this message. Uh, But before we dive in, I want to just say a couple things to you. First, I want to say if you've been concerned about the state of the church, if you've been concerned about the future of the church, if you were here last week, you don't need to be concerned any longer. The students of this church that led us last week led us beautifully, powerfully, and gracefully. So if you're concerned about the state of the church, set your mind at ease. Because these guys, uh, I see Braden here and Nate's over there. These two guys led us last week and they're back leading us again this week as well as some of our other students that led us. Uh, the, the future of the church is in really, really good hands. I have to just say thank you to uh, Troy and Emily and all of you that volunteer, that serve, that sow in our student ministry. These guys wouldn't be who they are without you guys that sow into their lives. And so I just wanna say thank you and thank you for you as a church for loving our faith family. Thanks for loving our students and our kids. Really, really cool. Last Sunday was really, really cool. It was evidence of God's work among us for sure. And I just wanna say thank you for journeying along and celebrating alongside me and my family as I finished my uh, doctoral degree at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Thank you. Here's a couple pictures from Our time in Boston, uh, AGB graduated the week before. And uh, so she and I took some pictures together and then she stole my stuff and thought it was cool. I love that kid. Um, We just had a blast. Uh, Some of you have asked me if you are uh, to now start calling me doctor. And the answer is no, please no, please no. I wanna tell you a quick story. Uh, Many years ago now, a new family came to our church and they came up to me afterwards and we were kind of standing and asking questions about the church, tell me about this. And I was trying to tell them all the answers that I could give them. And then at the very end, they kind of said, oh, one more thing. What do the people around here call you? Like, what's your name? Do they call you doctor? Do they call you bishop or reverend? Like, what do the people around here call? And I said, oh, I mean, some people, most of the kids around here just call me Mr. Craig, but most people call me whatever they want to call me. And sometimes I don't like it. But anyway, (laughs) I said, people just kind of called me. They were like, oh, okay, okay, cool. And then they left. And a couple weeks later, uh, they came back up after church was over and they met me down here and they go, we got it. We know what we're going to call you. You're not like a reverend or a bishop or a doctor or anything like that. You just get up there. You're just Craig. And they said, we're going to call you just Craig. (laughs) And I was like, yes. It was almost as if this weight was lifted off of me because I'm not Andy Stanley and I'm not Louis Giglio and I'm not John Piper. I'm just Craig. In my very first, (laughs) thank you, that's very kind. In my very first first cohort at Gordon-Conwell, this statement from Eugene Peterson was read to us, our little group. The biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. And the Holy Spirit gathers them and does his work in them. And in these community of sinners, 
one of the sinners is called pastor and given a designated responsibility in the community. I'm just Craig. And the more I can live into the person that he created me to be, the more faithful and fruitful my life will become. The Spirit taught me a ton in this doctoral program. It was called Practical Theology in Practice. And the Spirit used the usual suspects like books and papers and presentations. And like he does always in my life, he used deep, meaningful relationships. I met some people on this journey that are just totally incredible insanely beautiful people. Uh, He used my DMD group. He used my homies in California. Most prominently, he used my wife and my girls and my son-in-law and my granddaughter. Have I told you guys about my granddaughter? Because, and so now I have it all figured out. I got it all figured out. I, uh, (laughs) I have learned that I have a lot to learn. If I've learned anything, that's what I've learned. I got a lot to learn. The more I learn about God's holiness, the more I recognize sin and depravity. The more I learn about God's beauty, the more I recognize brokenness. The more I learn about God's divinity, the more I learn about my own humanity. And the more I learn about God's love, the more I long to live and love from a place of rest. I'm just scratching the surface. The people of Thessalonica, like me, probably like you, they were just scratching the surface. And they have a lot to learn from their doctor, uh, which means teacher in Latin, Paul. Sometime after writing Paul's first letter, he gets a response back from the people of Thessalonica And so he writes this second letter to encourage them. I want to make sure that you guys have a good context of the second letter of the Thessalonians. And I think the best way for us to do it is to watch this video from the Bible Project. So take a look at this. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. So not long after Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he got a report about the Christians in Thessalonica that the problems he had addressed in that letter not only had continued, but had gotten worse. The persecutions had intensified, and the Thessalonian Christians had become confused and scared about the return of Jesus. So Paul sent off this short letter, which is designed to have three sections that address the three problems in this church. Paul first offers hope in the midst of their continued persecution, and then he offers clarity about the coming day of the Lord, and then finally he brings a really specific challenge to the idle, people who were refusing to work normal jobs. And the end of each of these sections is clearly marked by a short closing prayer. Paul opens with a thanksgiving prayer for the Thessalonians' continued faithfulness and love, and specifically for their endurance. He's learned that their Greek and Roman and perhaps even Jewish neighbors have intensified their persecution of these Christians. They're a religious minority facing violent oppression. And Paul's worried that they might give up on Jesus if it gets worse. So Paul reminds them, like he did in the first letter, that their suffering because of being associated with Jesus, it's a way of participating in God's kingdom. 
Jesus was inaugurated as king by his suffering on the cross. And so his followers will show their victory over the world by imitating Jesus' nonviolence and patient endurance. Paul also reminds them that this won't last forever. When Jesus returns, he will bring his justice to bear on those that have oppressed them and shed the blood of the innocent. Specifically, he says that their punishment is to be banished away from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Paul does not speculate here on the fate of those who reject Jesus, except to say that throughout their lives they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and in the end they get what they want relational distance from their creator and their king. And for Paul, this is the ultimate tragedy, to choose separation from Jesus, who is the source of all life and love, is to embrace one's own undoing. He closes this thought by praying that God would use their suffering to bring about deep character change inside of them, so that their lives would bring honor to the name of Jesus. Paul then moves on to address a specific issue related to the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord. So somebody in the Thessalonian church community had been spreading wrong information in Paul's name, saying that God's final act of justice on human evil, the day of the Lord, it was upon them, it has come. And these people had likely been predicting dates about the end of all things, and they were frightening other Christians. And you can see why. Due to the intense persecution, they were vulnerable to somebody claiming that Jesus had already returned like a thief in the night. They've been left behind. Maybe he abandoned the Thessalonians to their suffering. This kind of talk really ticks Paul off. It's misrepresenting his teaching. The return of Jesus should never inspire fear, but rather hope and confidence. Paul reminds them of everything he taught them about Jesus' return back when he was in town. And he gives a short summary here. It's actually too short. This paragraph has lots of puzzles and problems of interpretation. But what's clear is that he cites the well-known theme from the prophets Isaiah and Daniel, that the kingdoms of this world will continue to produce rulers who rebel against God, like Nebuchadnezzar or the king of the north did in the past. These leaders had exalted themselves to divine authority. And for Paul, these ancient kings and prophecies, they give us images. They set out a pattern that he saw fulfilled in his own day in the Roman emperors, Caligula and Nero. And he expected that it would be repeated again. That history would culminate with such a rebellious ruler, empowered by evil itself. Someone who will wreak havoc and violence in God's world, but not forever. When Jesus returns, he will confront the rebel and all who perpetrate evil, and he will deliver his people. So Paul's point here is not to give later readers fuel for apocalyptic speculation. Rather, he's comforting the Thessalonians. He's recalling the teachings of Jesus from Mark chapter 13, who said that the events leading up to his return would be very public and obvious. And so they don't need to be scared or worried that they've been left behind. Rather, they need to stay faithful until Jesus returns to deliver them. And so in his closing prayer, he asked Jesus and the Father to comfort and strengthen the Thessalonians to stay faithful to the way of Jesus. Which brings Paul to the final topic. It's a challenge for those who were idle, which doesn't just mean lazy. This refers to people who were irresponsible and who refused to work and provide for themselves, resulting in chaotic personal lives. So Paul had actually addressed this problem in his first letter, and it seems like it's gotten worse. 
Now, we don't know for certain why some people in this church were refusing to work. It's possible that this problem is connected to the previous one. Maybe some people thought Jesus would return very soon, and so they quit their jobs and dropped out of normal life. But it's more likely that Paul's addressing a problem related to a practice in Roman culture called patronage. So you'd have poor people living in cities and they would become clients, kind of like personal assistants to wealthy people. And they would live off of their occasional generosity, but there were lots of strings attached. This sometimes involved the clients in their patron's morally corrupt way of life, not to mention it was unpredictable income. So this is what Paul seems to refer to when he says these people lead a disordered life. They're not working and they're meddling in the business of others. So Paul reminds them of the example he gave when he was with them. He didn't ask for their money. He worked a manual labor job so he could provide for himself and so he could serve the Thessalonians free of charge. He says this is the ideal. A follower of Jesus should imitate Jesus' self-giving love by working hard so they can provide for themselves and so their lives can be a benefit to other people. He concludes this with a final prayer that in the midst of all their confusion and suffering that God would grant them peace through the Lord Jesus the Messiah. This short letter to the Thessalonians, it helps us see that the early Christian belief in Jesus' return and the hope of final judgment, these ideas were not meant for generating speculation about apocalyptic timelines. Rather, these beliefs brought hope. They inspired faithfulness and devotion to Jesus, especially for persecuted Christians facing violent opposition. And so for later generations of Christians, whether they undergo persecution or not, this letter reminds us that what you hope for shapes what you live for. And that's what 2 Thessalonians is all about. Love that theme that this book talks about what you hope for shapes what you live for. I'm going to ask you this question a couple times this morning. What are you hoping for? What are you hoping for? What you hope for shapes what you live for. The first couple of verses of this letter, um, we see who the author is and we see who this letter is being written to. I think it's really important that you hear the heart that's behind the writers of this letter. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of Thessalonians... In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. If you have your Bibles, turn back just a page or two to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. We read this prayer that Paul prays over these guys a few weeks ago. In fact, if you were here a couple weeks ago when we got to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we spent time praying this prayer over one another. Not sure if you remember that uh, morning. If you were here, we prayed uh, this prayer from the message paraphrase. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 11 through 13 says this, May God our Father himself and our Master Jesus clear the road to you and may the Master pour on the love so it fills your lives and splashes over on everyone around you just as it does from us to you. May you be infused with strength and purity 
filled with confidence in the presence of God our Father when our master Jesus arrives with all of his followers. What Paul is praying for in this passage, now he's giving thanks for in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. What he prayed for in 1 Thessalonians, he's giving praise for in 2 Thessalonians because your faith is growing more and more and all the love, the, all the love <laughs> and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. This is exactly what he was praying for. This is really, really cool. If you were here a few weeks ago and you were praying this over someone and then that person came to you and said, hey, I just want you to know that this is, like, I don't know how this happened, but I'm actually growing in my love for other people. That would excite you, I would think, right? How many of you have ever prayed for someone and what you prayed for actually happened in their life? Is that, has that happened to anyone in here? Yeah? Like it actually happened. You're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. What Paul prayed for is actually happening in this church in spite of persecution and in spite of opposition, their love for each other is growing more and more. And he's so thankful for that. And he says, uh, in all the churches, in all the churches that we know, and Paul knew a lot of churches, he said, it's that church, your church. It's your church that we boast about most of all. Well, if you have your Bibles, verse five through 10 are totally packed. There's a lot going on here. The way that this was originally written, uh, verse 3 to verse 10, is actually one really long sentence. But it's broken up for us because there's so much happening, um, different parts and different pieces. Sonny's going to help us unpack these five verses, but let's read them first. It says this, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Sonny uh, has a, most of you know, Sonny has a uh, real passion for a deeper understanding of some of the end times teaching. And so a few months ago when we talked about this passage of scripture, uh, Sonny raised his hand and said he'd be willing to jump in. So thank you for being willing to jump in with us. Uh, or thank you for letting me call on you and jumping in with us. Sure. Tell us a little bit about these verses, Sonny. Yeah, uh, it really is a passion. It's, an, it's really the next thing that Jesus has for the church is um, how he's uh, very soon when the father says go it's time to gather the church up and to call us call us to himself and um, and so in this uh, what he's talking about is real clarification so that uh, the Thessalonians can have clear understanding and not be confused uh, between the difference of the second coming which is what you see towards the end of this passage and um, 
uh, and then when he first comes to gather the church unto himself. And so, uh, and we're going to get into that next week. Stony Bowl's going to come, and he's going to uh, share with us about that. So we're not going to get into everything because there's so much. But one of the things that uh, I think is really important for us to understand is exactly who God is because there's a lot of people who go, well, you know, he didn't seem like a real loving God, you know, that would, that would bring all this stuff on these people. I mean, you've heard that before. I mean, I mean it's, if people don't understand exactly who God is, and I think it's important for us to see that. Um, it says that God's judgment is right. It says God is just. Um, so where, where does that authority, where does that actually come from? Because he is love. He is grace, he is mercy, but he's also, in all these things, uh, he is, uh, he's the one that brings judgment uh, on people that don't, that don't adhere to uh, what he has done for us. So, if you go back to Revelation 4 and 5, one of the things that you see in that is um, the four living beings around the throne, right? And then there's the 24 elders all around the throne, that picture is kind of what this is all about right here. It's about how we get out of the way, and Jesus is really lifted up, and he's glorified. But in that, though, the, the four living beings and the 24 elders, what is it, you can answer out loud, what is it that they are proclaiming to the top of their lungs? What are they proclaiming? Holy. That's it. He's holy. Everything comes from his holiness. That's who he is. God is holy. And from his holiness, the most pure Everything is there. From that holiness comes his love and his grace and his mercy. Also, his judgment that comes from that. And it's like that, that's the authority. If you ever get to the end of Job, in those chapters right there at the end where God's actually talking to Job, it's kind of like, oh, my. You know, you just like go, oh, man, where were you when I found you know, the foundations of the world. Where were you? And it's like, man, you're just like going, oh, man, he's ultimate authority. He's it. He's it. And so for those that don't know, they will. They will. So we find out that God is all authority. And a little bit later, we find out there's those that love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they are being, they're just under great persecution. So you've got that kind of folk. And then you've got the other folk that is really like just, I mean, giving them the what for. It's like they, they hate these Christians. You know, we're all going, hey, you know, we're full of love. We want to love each other. We want to love these guys. We want you to come into the kingdom to know him. And uh, all these other guys are going, no, we want to be our own God. We're not interested in being crucified with Christ. That's not, that's not what we want. We want to be our own God. We want to make our own decisions, and we're going to do our own thing. And you guys are crazy for thinking that that's what we're all about, you know, that we're going to let y'all get away with this. And, man, what a clash there is. But God pays attention to that. He does. He pays attention. Um, and if we go back, though, to the next set of verses on all this, uh, it's you, you see what the end result is of this. The ones that are against God the Father and his children, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord 
and from the glory of his might. Man, that's heavy. You let that sink in. Punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Even though people don't realize it, we have a taste of that right now. His presence is here. His goodness is here. And in uh, his presence is in those that love Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in each of us that know him. And so we are able to be near his presence and see some of his glory in this world through people that love him and follow him. But the encouragement is like verse 10, on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony. The people there believed what Paul said about Jesus and they received Jesus into their lives. And so on that day, and this, on that day, a lot of times, you know, you read in the word where it's capital D, day, right? That is the second coming. Uh, when Jesus comes back and all of his heavenly hosts come with him, glorifying him. And this is where uh, he ends it all. All the tribulation that happens during those seven years. Uh, this is when he wraps that up and it's like, we're done. We're done. And uh, it's, a, it's a very heavy day. I want us to look, though, at the, at the two people and what Jesus actually talks about. There's children of the light. There's children of darkness. And to do that, I want to go back to probably one of the most familiar verses, John 3, 16, uh, through verse 21. Uh, so let's, let's read about this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Man, that's good news for us. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates light and does not come to the light. Least his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light. That his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So you can see right here in the scripture this war, this battle. Everyone practicing evil hates the light. And that's the persecution that this church was facing and having to deal with. And Paul's really encouraging them, uh, especially like in this verse 21, what Jesus says, but he who does the truth comes to the light and his deeds may clearly be seen. And as they stand up for Jesus and glorify him, uh, our father takes note and he goes, man, I'm, I love these, I love these, I'm here. You know. Sonny, you've talked about a ton here. All of it's really rich. Um, tell us about how to do it. Like, what do we do with the here and now? How do we, what is the implication for us in the here and now? Yeah. 
in the same way that there was persecution back then. Uh, and, you know, now these people have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them just like we do today. We're on this side of the cross. So, I mean, we have the Spirit dwelling in us that gives us strength and power to overcome uh, whatever it is that Satan would throw those fiery darts at us, right? And um, so just as there's persecution in those days, now if you read uh, uh, different publications that are out that keep track of the, of, the, of the persecution going on all around the world, there is more persecution going on right now than has ever been in this world. Isn't that crazy? I mean, in the United States, we don't think about that too much. Hasn't been too rough, but you're starting to see that there's things that are starting to creep in more and more, more and more, more and more pressure. There's more and more people that are leaving the faith. They're, maybe they never have given their life to Jesus, but you see what I'm saying? There's more and more things that are coming in this country now, but around the world, man, it is, the, the persecution is just on stun. So, this is, this is good news for those that are suffering. And I know it sounds kind of like, well, is that really good news? I mean, they're suffering for the sake of Christ. It is. Uh, Paul says that he uses all things for the good, for them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. doesn't mean that it's not hard. But God calls us into this fellowship with him. Just like Paul was doing, man, uh, those in Thessalonica did the very same thing. And we're called to do that today. Uh, there is a, a passage in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, I think it's really cool. Paul talks about this also, for our light and momentary troubles. Look at that first part, our light and momentary troubles. And you know, you're saying people are losing their lives. But it's Paul's perspective, it's what he sees the big picture, and the best is yet to come, all right? So that's what he's seeing. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So when you look at the very end of the passages that we were looking at in verse 10 in uh, chapter 1 of Second uh, Thessalonians, you're going to see on that day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you. This includes all the saints in this world right now because you have believed our testimony to you. Sonny, when you think about all of this stuff as it relates to that church and to our church today, here we are, um, what, uh, what are you hoping for? Mm. What you hope for shapes what you live for, so what are you hoping for? I, you just remind me of a song that we sing, my hope is built on nothing else uh. than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? <laughs> oh, I'm so thankful for songs that, that, that just remind me of things like that. You know, um, Craig, we, we only live in this life because Jesus has come inside us and given us the power to do this in his Holy Spirit. And so, you know, my hope, is that, um, that I would just allow him to make himself at home in my heart, in my life, so that I'm able to walk this, this Jesus life out, you know, in an everyday way, wherever I go, um, and that I would just glorify him. Yeah. Um, he says that while we're waiting, because we don't know when the Father's going to say, 
let's go. Let's call up this church. What he calls us to do is not to sit around, just like what the video said, uh, but to be about our Father's business. Jesus talked about that two different times that I recall. Uh, one was when he was like 12 years old, remember, and Joseph and Mary took back off, and then Jesus was behind at the temple, and they didn't know where he was. They came back and finally found him, and it's like, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? This 12-year-old kid, right? I mean, I know it's Jesus, but I mean, good night. He knew. He knew what this was all about, his father's business. Well, he has called us to do the very same thing, to dig in his word, to understand, to proclaim who he is to everyone that's around us so that they might have the hope that we find. What does it say? What did Paul say? Man, this mystery has been finally revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Man, that's, that, that's it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for living that out. You live that out really, really well. You too, uh, brother. Amidst, you. amidst all of us. Will you guys just tell Sonny, thank you for helping us with this passage of Scripture. Thank you, Sonny. Amen. We were talking just uh, not too long ago, as we were talking about this, we were talking about the passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In light of all that Paul has written, in light of all that Paul hopes for, he pauses here at the end of the chapter. Um, all of this can sound overwhelming. All of this can sound kind of crazy, really hard to grasp. Amidst great persecution and oppression, as Paul ends this part of his letter, he stops and prays for these guys. So verse 11 and verse 12, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. And we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we are made worthy. Paul is praying for his followers of Jesus, to, for the followers of Jesus to live in obedience. Uh, the second half of verse 11, I just find it breathtaking. There's this incredible partnership on display in this prayer. He says, by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith. This all starts with God's power. God's the initiator. He's the divine initiator. He works, he moves, he acts, we respond. By his power, his, our prayers are always responsive to what God is already doing. I don't know if this is true for you, but my prayers are the truest expression of my heart. When I'm praying, it's like as real as it gets. Paul's praying that these guys this truest expression might come forth. He calls out their every desire for goodness. The word goodness means the uprightness of heart or kindness. Embedded in the life of every believer is this desire for healing and wholeness and holiness. Paul uses the word desire. It's that deep, deep, true 
kind of craving or longing of the soul. Our, our, our culture has hijacked the word desire for sure. Uh, but here, Paul is talking about that deepest, truest longing of the soul. In response to God's saving love, our desire is for goodness. Our desire really is for more of God. Goodness expressed through more of God. As we grow in Christ, our desires for good or our desires for God begin to be molded and shaped by the spirit to be conformed to his image. The question that we've been asking over the last few minutes, the question of what we hope for, that question is rooted in our deepest desires. What we hope for shapes what we live for. Our desire for good is what gives birth to our hope that our every deed would be prompted by faith. So Paul's praying that the overflow of our hearts, the overflow of our desire for good, the overflow of our desire for more of God would result in our actions or our deeds being prompted by faith. Our actions or our deeds then would become faithful expressions of our love for God. I love that Paul prays this way. In light of everything that's going on, he prays that we would be faithful from the inside out. That's what we truly hope for and that's what we live for. So I'll ask one more time. What are you hoping for? What are you living for? What are you willing to die for? And maybe more importantly, what are you loving for? Maybe sometime later on this afternoon, you could get with a friend or uh, call someone on the phone and say, hey, we talked a little bit about this at church. Can we just talk a little bit about this together this afternoon? Or maybe before you leave this, uh, our, uh, this gathering, maybe you could just pull someone inside and say, hey, what are you hoping for? Or, or maybe you could just say, hey, I just, would you hope with me? Would you hope with me? I would just love for you not to just hear this message and walk out the door and go, that was good, but to practically put into practice that which we're talking about this morning. So let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your grace. All of life and love are possible because of your grace. Jesus, would you remind us that we are worthy? We are worthy. You have made us worthy. Continue to empower us to embody a life of goodness and kindness and beauty. And that regardless of where we find ourselves today, we would take a step toward faithfulness. I pray this so that your name, the name of our Lord Jesus, may be glorified in us and through us according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Just want to give you just a couple of minutes to respond. Uh, we'll just begin with a little bit of silence here. I uh, invite you to respond to the Spirit however he might be leading. Might be that you just want to sit quietly in your chair and pray. Might be that you want to huddle up with some people. Might be that you want to come and take communion together to remember and to declare the goodness, the sacrifice of Jesus. We've set up some chairs here, kind of a little bit of an altar here. I want to invite you, maybe that's a response, to come forward and just kneel here at the altar and pray. However the Spirit might 
be leading you, I want to invite you in these moments to respond. Let's pray together.